0: Reading from St. Paul's epistle to the Corinthians. All things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Do not seek your own advantage, but that of the other. Eat whatever sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth and its fullness are the Lord's. If an unbeliever invites you, To a meal and you are disposed to go, eat whatever set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, has this been offered as a sacrifice, then do not eat it out of consideration for the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I mean the other's conscience, not your own. For why should my liberty be subject to the judgment of someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why should I be denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the Church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, so that they may be saved imitators of me as I am of Christ this is the word of the Lord hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew to you O Lord then Jesus told his disciples if any want to become my followers let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me for those who want to save their life will lose it and those who lose their life for my sake will find it for what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life or what will they give in return for their life this is the gospel of the lord praise to you
1: Okay, I would argue with Chris and there's only really one mark of uh, 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 you know of maturity for the church and it's just discipleship. So if you just make it for this week, you can skip the rest of the, the the five weeks and you'll still be set every week should be actually the one mark of the church should be discipleship so I feel really lucky that I get to uh, have this week so thank you, Chris so much. Um, yeah, it was really a funny thing to meet uh, Chris and Dave in Seattle. And then, like, they were talking about a uh, renovation work that they're doing, you know, through the church, this opportunity uh, uh, during the pandemic. And then Dave starts showing you pictures of the church where, like, you know, my husband and I went to for many, many years. And I'm like, I know this. Are you all from Philadelphia? So it was such a treat to, to meet all of them. Um, yeah, I, I'm just going to start off with just a little bit of um, something that I think resonates with all of you, is the Eagles. Uh, if you're not originally from Philadelphia, then uh, I hope because you live here, this will resonate with you. But um, I remember having a ER shift uh, at Jefferson Hospital, and um, this is when you really, really know uh, how much uh, Philadelphia loves the Eagles. because. Uh, during one of the playoff games, nobody was in the hospital. During the playoff games in the ER, like the, one of the busiest uh, places in the city, it was empty, so empty that all, all the nursing staff, all the doctors, everybody, all the tech support, we all just like drew open the curtains because every, every little uh, corner has like a, a TV screen so that we can all, including patients, watch the Eagles, right? So we all gear it so that it's at the central location so we can, it's like surround sound Eagles playoff game. So we're all watching it. And sure enough, as soon as the game uh, was over, everybody started to have a heart attack. They all could stop having a heart attack for three hours and then as soon as the game's over, you know, and then they all come in. It was such a bizarre thing to see uh, the city uh, uh, being these, these me- mega fans, right? Uh, uh, my husband and, and I have three, uh, three kids. Uh, they're 18, 16, and 13. And when we moved from Philadelphia about 15 years ago, um, it finally hit Steve and our son, Baron, that we moved 5,000 miles away. And it wasn't because we moved away from grandparents or their cousins or our church family or our neighbors or our friends. It's because they realized our son was like, Daddy, does this mean that we can't go to the Citizens Bank Park anymore? Yeah, son, yeah, it's okay. We can make it through together. And I'm just like, kidding me? This is the only reason why you have remorse about moving 5,000 miles away from our family and friends. But that's like the gripping um, characteristic of what a fan is, like a diehard fan, right? Uh, But we also see in culture, and you all know, right, if you're a diehard uh, Phillies fan or an Eagles fan or a Flyers fan, you all know when there are bandwagoners. You all know that people only, only wear certain paraphernalia at certain times of the year when the Eagles are doing well. And then you watch to see if they're going to still wear that next year when the Eagles aren't doing that well. I'm sorry, that's a sore subject. Sorry. Um, and then you kind of know, are they really true, true fans, right? Are they really following uh, 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 our team or are they just like being a bandwagoner? we kind of see this, this uh, theme of following fans. Can we tell who's a true follower, who's just a mere fan? Not just in sports arena, right? All of us, I'm sure, whether we like to admit it or not, uh, uh, social media has come and it's here to stay, right? Um, Uh, A research paper on perspectives on social media influencers and their followers, Uh, communications professor Brandy Watkins uh, wrote a lot about SMIs or social media influencers, that very often the lengths someone will go to in order to maintain their status as an influencer are astonishing, as are the many pitfalls that are associated with the pressures of being an SMI. The social media culture has exaggerated the race of who has the most followers and how to desperately appease them to maintain a following at the ever-present threat of being unfollowed. Even if you're not an SMI, I'm not an SMI, I think I have like five followers and my kids laugh at me a little bit, right? But I think that even if you don't, there is something that happens to us when we like see that heart, see that little click, somebody enjoyed something I said, right? And you you, you kind of think about why do people follow who they follow, and then why do people unfollow who they unfollow, right? Uh, if you're not a sports person, I'm sure you're a, you're a social media person, right? Both of these things are ingrained in our culture, especially here, here in the city. And so when we're thinking about uh, what does following someone mean, what does following something means, uh, being a fan or not a fan, what does it mean to be a true follower, a true fan, I think that in our culture, it really, really has become blurred. Uh, following kind of means I like something, but I'm not fully committed to it. I have the advantage and the luxury to unfollow at any time. I follow something or someone because as soon as they disappoint me, then I can easily turn, turn aside. I'm only gonna follow them if they're performing at high peak or they're entertaining me at a higher level than somebody else, right? It feels like when we te- uh, think about following um, being a fan of something, it has a lot to do with what kind, not just what kind of merit or value uh, the object or person has, it has a lot to do with what their performance and entertainment and, and capturing of my attention they can provide. So I know that one of the marks, I'm sure, one of five marks of the church is discipleship. But I do think that there's an importance in thinking about placing discipleship at the front. Because it actually uh, confronts us with the question, why do we follow Jesus? Discipleship uh, makes us have to think very, very clearly about who it is that we are saying we are a true follower of. And it asks us why. Why? Why is Jesus the only one that we are saying we are going to follow and we are following or making every effort uh, to follow? If you're not a, 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 a you know, professor a, a faith in Jesus here uh, and you're kind of just seeking uh, this place out, I think it is actually a pivotal question that non-Christians should be asking other Christian friends or colleagues or family members. What is it about Jesus that's worth following? and why. Um, <clears throat> i give a little uh, background of my, uh, my story. Uh, I'm a um, co-vocational Like Chris said, I'm a physician, but I'm also the lead pastor of a church called Makealoo. Uh, Makealoo in Hawaiian means presence. We believe in the presence of God, uh, being present with one another, and present in the community around us. And we chose that uh, that phrase because specifically every Hawaiian person who knows Hawaiian language would would say to us, actually, it's an incomplete phrase. It literally means to be put in front of or to be put in the face of. That's what presence means in Hawaiian. A more familiar Hawaiian word uh, you all probably know if you watch Lilo and Stitch is uh, aloha. Uh, Aloha is piecing together two Hawaiian words. Uh, It means alo, which is face or presence, and ha means breath. And the reason why people say aloha as a greeting, yes, it means hello and goodbye, uh, is because the way that um, indigenous Hawaiian people would greet one another was they put their foreheads Uh, uh, against one another and they're sharing a breath of life they're saying that i know and see your presence and you are seeing mine and therefore we are exchanging both of our life breaths that's actually what aloha means as soon as a lot of um you know, folks from the mainland outside of of indigenous Hawaii started coming to the islands and they put out their hand to shake hands as a greeting. It was really confusing for native Hawaiians because they were just like, are these people haole, people who are without breath? That's how they named it. So if you're kind of seeing, I'm, I'm Holly uh, in Hawaii. I'm a foreigner, right? Not from Hawaii. But that's what it, the, these terms come from because of culturally how they're thinking about uh, what does it mean to be present. So that's why we wanted to uh, have presence and that word alo face, sharing life together as part of what it means to be present for us as Jesus followers uh, in Hawaii. So, when we started out, this is our second church plant, uh, we're six years in now. And um, just before Easter of 2020, remember Easter of 2020? Remember all the crowds that did not happen on Easter of 2020? So, just before Easter of 2020, uh, as a church plant, we were so excited. We really thought that this was the time that we were going to like, be put on the map all my people who like slaved away, were so persistent, you know, church planting work is so difficult, um, that this is the moment where like, okay, we finally landed. Cause we knew that we're gonna have over a hundred people come to our first uh, Easter, a uh, public worship service gathering. Look, I don't know about you, but a hundred people, if you've been stuck doing church planting stuff for so long and you have just small pods of people, feels exciting for us. We like had it, uh, we're going to have it at a trendy craft beer tasting place. So we're like, not just a church plant that's going to hit hundred people. We're a cool church plant that's hitting hundred people. So they're all going to gather. We're going to have drinks, talk about Jesus. It's going to be so great. This is when we're going to feel like we're actually going to have, have launched the church. Well, you all know that in March of 2020 everything shut down, including uh, trendy craft beer uh, tasting places and we, I, It was the first time that I knew that this was probably a great temptation in my heart. It was easy for me to say that oh, you know the kingdom of God has small beginnings you know over and over again encouraging encouraging my leaders, encouraging my my, my church plans but this one hit because I felt like it was such a loss of opportunity. I felt like we were robbed. But my people actually didn't experience the pandemic that way. They didn't experience as what a loss and opportunity of meeting together uh, over 100 people in a trendy craft beer tasting room. Immediately, their loss that they were thinking about is how do we serve the neighbors that we have been walking with uh, this whole time? those who are in need? How can we identify those who are marginalized quickly? And we have, so how do we serve and meet their needs? We had intended to um, have uh, uh, some, some residents from a low income senior living facility come, come with us, We're gonna like uh, van them in, like six people, which sounded exciting to us, right? But uh, the entire uh, building actually has 73 low-income senior living, uh, it's a, it houses residents that way. And um, the folks who are part of that neighborhood in our in our church community, they first ask not how can we bring them over and, and ban them over to, to gather together, they're like how do we serve their needs because these low-income seniors are taking the public bus to the food bank every single week just carrying two um, non-perishables uh, and bring it back and they're doing this week in and week out at the peak of how scary and uncertain the pandemic was, right? They're the most vulnerable in our population. How do we meet their needs? We had another uh, 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 group of people who we were going to invite um, this house's population, they're doing really good work on the west side of Oahu, um, and this one a woman and her family, uh, they were serving about 300 uh, uh, families on the west side. And we were just going to have them come, maybe 20 of their other people come and join us for uh, our trendy craft beer tasting Easter uh, service, but we couldn't have it. But then we heard that they lost funding uh, because uh, there was limited funding for for, um, uh, food uh, resources. And so um, 300 families uh, from Abigail's uh, community had lost access to food. We had another uh, community of about 150 uh, uh, seniors who also, we were going to probably invite like five of them to come uh, to this gathering. And um, we realized that none of them had access for their families to come have a meal with them on Easter Sunday. What did we do instead? We had over a hundred people gather outside. We just found creative ways to gather outside because I'm sorry, we live in Hawaii. We have a lot of outside all the time. Um, so we, we, we made it so that there were lots of food sorting. We, we uh, quickly found uh, uh, resources and connection points, direct giving, in-kind giving uh, of, of food resources and all of it so that we could provide for over a thousand people that Easter Sunday with exactly what they needed. Whether it were groceries, meals, uh, a, a friendly face that day, so that they weren't alone. Uh, that, that houses community of 300 families, they all got a box of fresh produce that could last them for two weeks. They've never received fresh produce. They always got the, the non-perishable cans. I felt like that was the first time, and this is my second church plan. I've been in ministry for like 20 years. Uh, It was the first time that I experienced what Jesus was talking about in the parable of the seeds. That some seed fell in good soil, and over time it produced 30, 60, 100 fold. I was limiting God that the most exciting thing that could happen in our church plan to help us land it and be a launch, that we really made it, was that 100 people would come and drink beer together. And yet God had other plans even amidst a pandemic. Over 1,000 people either served alongside of us or were served uh, during the pandemic, 10 times over. So when I think about what it means to be a follower, I think, and and, and that word of discipleship, I think that it, the difference that was made in our community was not necessarily because we could pivot quickly because we're a church plant. No, I don't really think that that's true. If you take the statistics of what most church plants uh, aim to do, they don't aim to just serve a thousand people uh, of the most uh, needed in their society. They actually aim to just have a Sunday worship service. Most of the church even uh, during uh, the pandemic in 2020, they also rushed to do what every other church uh, globally, if they had the means to do so, did. Everybody went to how do we uh, stream, our, uh, digitally stream our services, our gatherings, right? Even if there was a gathering of just like maybe 15 people, that's what everybody was uh, trying to, to do. That was the big scramble of Easter of 2020. I also uh, um, have done a lot of work with with national and global uh, church planting and established church remissioning work. And most of the uh, uh, consulting work that that I have conversations with with lead pastors on is how does discipleship uh, uh, work effectively in our church gatherings? And um, part of it is because we don't really have a clarity on what discipleship is. You know, one of the first questions that I ask of any leader who's asking, asking to kind of problem solve that or wondering why this isn't happening is, is asking like, do your people know what discipleship is? Do you know what discipleship is? A different way of asking that question that probably all of us could think about is, have you ever been discipled? And how do you know that you were? And have you ever discipled somebody else? And how do you know that you, you have? Uh, In 2nd Chronicles 14 to 16, it highlights the reign of um, uh, King uh, Asa, who was the king of Judah. Um, And it was described of him that his heart was fully committed to the Lord all his life, and yet after gaining safety and securing safety for uh, uh, Judah uh, against the surrounding nations, um, in his 36th year of reign, King Asa makes an unwise treaty using silver and gold from the Lord's temple with the king of Aram to find his own security, and that became uh, at at the detriment of Israel. And so Hanani the seer goes to the king and says, were not the Cushites and Libyans a mighty army with great numbers of chariots and horsemen, and yet when you relied on the Lord, He delivered them into your hand, for the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You have done a foolish thing, and from now on, you will be at war. I love that phrase that when God is looking over the people, what is he he looking for? He's looking for followers, and God clearly defines what a follower is. Not someone who is at luxury to unlike and like him whenever they feel. Not have the luxury to unlike or like him because he performed well. He didn't disappoint me. Uh, He gave me a really great teaching. He made me feel good about myself. He provided for me, not just when those positive things are happening, but God is looking to and fro for those uh, true followers who uh, are fully committed to Him, who rely on Him in and out of season, through disappointment, through uncertainties, through the pandemic, through tension points, through conflicts, through loss, through suffering, even in all those kinds of mixed bags of what life brings us, do we still follow and rely on God because we're true followers? Thank you, Chris, for for choosing those two passages. That was just literally just a little uh, plant for me. Um, I love those two passages, one because When Paul is writing, you know, most of Paul's uh, letters to the early church was actually written before uh, the first gospel account, which was the gospel of Mark. So most of the time, you're you're thinking about an order of reading. Most of the people, early Christians, have already read uh, Paul's letters before they've come to reading uh, the gospel accounts. And most of the gospel accounts are actually intended for believers, right? Having a complete story. You know, Mark is way faster. He's always like, immediately. And then, immediately, right? So I really love Mark's account. Um, but, you know, you're kind of seeing that this was, this, this was how followers or disciples were defined after. But I like that um, Paul, where every time um, Jesus is talking about come and follow me, be a disciple of me, if come and follow me, that word that he's using is methetes. In English, we're going to use, use both words. A lot of the translations are using, using both uh, words. But... Um, that that word um methetas is um Uh, meaning more like apprentice, pupil. Uh, It makes more sense during that time because Jesus was also a rabbi and rabbis had apprentices, right? Under rabbis, under teachers who are following. Apprenticeship life was very, very normal uh, in that culture. So the word "methetas," everyone would know that that means, oh yeah, it's somebody, I I chose to follow this person who is more masterful than an expert than I am and I'm going to choose to follow him. Um, And Jesus says, whoever wants to be my follower or my disciple, whoever wants to methetes me, must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. So Jesus begins already that this thought of you're going to gain something, maybe a teaching, uh, maybe you'll grow in mastery of something. Jesus is already defining that following me, being my disciple, requires denying yourself, taking up your cross. And that's the way in which you follow me. But for most of the early Christians, by the time they get to that word and that clarity um, in words, they're listening to uh, things like the passage, passage from 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, right? Where Paul uses, you know, again, English translation limited, it says follow me, right? He's using the word mimetes. So by that time, the the first century Christians already know that following Jesus means more than just apprenticing him, being a pupil or a student or a learner. Uh, It means uh, being an imitator. That word mimetes means imitating. So the better translation is from the NRSV. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Mimetes... um, uh, when we're thinking about it, say say it helps us to define clearly what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus. Disciples of Jesus aren't people who just like or unlike him, maybe like some things about him, know some things about him, or know a lot of things about him, learning uh, pieces about his life, uh, uh, being sometimes compelled by uh, his death, maybe seeing some sort of inspiration uh, through his resurrection. That's not what it means to be a disciple. Being a disciple uh, to Jesus, how Paul was, was also describing it in his letters to the church, and I really believe that the first century church also believed this. Being a follower or a disciple of Jesus meant I am choosing to imitate him. I'm choosing not just to follow him, but I want to imitate how he thinks how he loves, how he serves, where he goes, whom does he go to? I want to imitate all of him. I want to imitate his inner life, and I want to imitate his outer life. I want to imitate who does he think more valuable in society than others? Who is he bringing more comfort to and challenging in society? If we're imitating Jesus as disciples, as followers, as of uh, fans of Jesus, it means that we have to know these things about Jesus. Not just that I am I'm a, I'm a disciple of Jesus because he died for my sins and he rose back to life and now I have a golden ticket to heaven and I can now have a retirement plan and twiddle my thumb and wait until I can cash that, that golden ticket in. If that's what it means to be a Christian, to be to be marked by discipleship, then really, The church is a great big retirement party, isn't it? We get to gather weekly to give one another a high five about how great our lives are because because we get to retire from life. But if discipleship is a mark of what it means to be the church, and that means how does the church as a community imitate Christ? In the ways that he thinks? in the way that he loves, in the ways that he serves, in the ways that he thinks about how value systems work, how generosity works, what does it mean to be truly compassionate? What does it mean to be a neighbor? Who is our neighbor? When we are captivated by how Jesus has lived and died and rose again, and we want to imitate that, then the church becomes a very, very different kind of community, right? It becomes a community that doesn't want to first ask the question, how are we going to gather during a pandemic? They're going to be the church that kind of, uh, uh, the community that asks first, how do we go out to our neighbors and our neighborhoods to meet their needs? I talked a little bit about um, Uh, um, those stories about who who we got to uh, bring along and over a thousand people and it sounds like an amazing thing and it would have that story alone sounds amazing but because I knew that discipleship was actually happening in our community because um, it didn't just stop there it wasn't just oh my gosh the epic Easter of 2020 where a thousand people were involved and then we never had that again. Uh, Six years in, when we started with about uh, 12 people being intentionally discipled uh, together made a commitment for about a year, they were tethered intentionally to an identified space of mission. We just had the simplest uh, uh, form of that. 20 to 50 people would meet together once a week to have a community dinner. Everybody in Hawaii loves potluck, so that was the way to go. So we did that because it was the easiest thing because simplicity is easy to replicate. And doing a community dinner every single week, consistency shows an outside world of our faithfulness. That's all I wanted to hit for that year. And if Jesus just gave me those 12 people tethered to a potluck community dinner every week for five years, I would have been fully satisfied. But six years now, uh, we actually have multiplied that kind of construct in our church 12 times. We serve over 650 people, 650 people who do not know who I am, even though I am the lead pastor. They know all of the people that I entrust, that they should be better imitated as they imitate Christ. Why? Because, remember, I'm a howly. I'm a person who comes and shakes hands with them when I first greet them. I'm an outsider, and I'm kind of brown, but as soon as I open up my mouth, they all know that I'm from Philadelphia. So I would actually be less effective to preach the gospel, because i would be a less effective person that that local people would want to imitate as I imitate Christ. I needed to find people who are imitatable in the local context that we lived in. So raising up, not just having discipleship, right, but having disciple makers. Discipleship and that imitation game of Jesus, we have to think about, does our church, I love, Chris, that you talked about, uh, are there nominations for elders, right? actually sitting in this room are people that when I was thinking about writing this book, like the Statins over there, I thought about the gift of their faithfulness, the gift of their presence, and their gift of their maturity. And and as I was writing this book, I thought about what makes a mature disciple mature? Mature disciples, there's a sense of a long game. They have a deep deep love for their neighbors and 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 the city around them right it's how they imitate jesus is what you want other people to imitate as well so when we think about discipleship we're thinking about imitation and then next we're thinking about whom should our people and our community imitate for us in makelo these people should not imitate me they should imitate local leaders they should imitate people who uh, were, or have done most of their life uh, upbringing there, who don't sound super, super well-educated all the time because, you know, she's from Philadelphia. It's the people who know, know how to talk story, love the pace of sitting with a person for, for a long time. These are all big values in Hawaii. So I knew that if these were the people who were platformed and discipled first— then imitation could actually happen uh, in our community. Um, I'll I'll leave us with this. I shared this at the the seminar uh, yesterday, but when we look again at the the first century church and we think about, you know, most of that time, they were just a tiny little uh, 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 off-cuff cult. The government never paid attention to them. No one really, really cared. Uh, But the two things that made them distinct uh, made a society start to pay attention to them. And I believe they did this because the first uh, 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 churches were imitating Jesus in the ways that he, he thinks, loves, serves, uh, values. Uh, they were, were distinct in two ways. One, uh, they were the first kind of group that ate uh, at an open table together. A caste system in the Roman Empire did not come into effect at that in those churches, right? These house churches. Uh, they broke ca- um, uh, uh, status uh, symbols, uh, uh, wealth gaps, gender gaps, um, uh, whether you were noble or you were servants, right? Why, why uh, Paul talks a lot about those categories of people is because that's how the early churches were made up. Nobody, uh, uh, Christianity wasn't just an association uh, that, that tells you what, what, what class and society you have. Christianity meant that, oh my goodness, I'm going to sit at the table from somebody who is completely different from me. And I'm willing to share a meal with them. So that was one thing. Uh, the second thing was, um, as Rodney Stark writes in The Rise of Christianity, uh, he's a sociologist, he looked at what, what put Christian, Christians on the map. It was the plagues of 165 and 251 AD in Rome. The, uh, he describes it as life in the city at that time was of disease, misery, and fear. We kind of remember this because of the plague of 2020, right? Um, and it changed society. But the thing was that uh, what made uh, uh, world empires look at Christians for the first time was because uh, while the rest of society uh, just had the means to pick up their things and go to a, a different sort of stone sediment, and it was the diseased, impoverished, the ones who did not have the means, they were the ones who had to stay in the city. And the only people who made a decision, and I believe because they imitated Jesus, made a decision to stay were the Christians. This tiny little cult, nobody made, made sense to them, right? They're all eating together and broke caste systems. They were the ones who decided to stay and most of them actually died with the sick, the most vulnerable, the weakest in our communities. Their presence mattered deeply. They chose to believe in the presence of God, be more present with one another and present in the community around them, why? It's not because they thought that the kingdom of God means I need to just be suffering and I'm going to suffer with those who are suffering and then die. No, it's because they made a commitment that um, the presence of God really matters, not just in a limited way or, a, or just a theoretical way, but it really deeply matters emotionally, mentally, physically. Uh, uh, it brings a wholeness that no other uh, uh, culture can bring. And they imagined a better world in the coming future, but also were present in the solutions for present day concerns and uncertainties. They so loved and served the community and culture around them that this simple act of self-giving love, because ultimately, what is discipleship? It's imitating Jesus in his way of self-giving love. While the rest of the city fled and left the most vulnerable behind, their act of presence and of self-giving love within the context of their community. It wasn't just one person doing it, it was a community doing it together. It demonstrated an apologetic for the world around them in a way that made nations look at the power of the cross. Why is discipleship a mark of the church? It's because discipleship is a thing that puts a Christ at the center. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that uh, Christianity without discipleship is actually Christianity without Christ. Let's just say it one more time. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was, you know, kicked out of his country because he resisted resisted and contended against Nazi Germany, believed so much and the power of discipleship, that he banked his life on it, right? And he said, Christianity, if we are not centered on discipleship, then we are not centered on Christ. Can I pray for us? Um, If you can and feel comfortable, if you just open up your hands like you're receiving a gift, um, and I'd love to pray for us. Jesus, I feel so overwhelmed by your faithful presence uh, in this city, your faithful presence uh, to this church community, um, all the stories that I've heard uh, this week um, of your faithfulness throughout uncertainty, changes, emergings, communities coming together, uh, uh, you know, having a, uh, you know that, that woodland Presbyterian uh, building now, all these stories, different communities, um, passing of people, loss. Jesus, I just thank you for your faithful presence uh, in the ways that you have been shaping and leading uh, Resurrection Philadelphia all these years. I pray that you would give them a gift Uh, to have eyes to see how central following you is, and not just for them individually, but for as an entire community. What does it mean and what would it look like for Resurrection Philadelphia to be a church community that actually actively, uh, practically imitates you? How would uh, this city that you have loved for so long and so faithfully change and be transformed and redeemed in all the ways that it it needs to. Do so because Resurrection Philadelphia, as an entire community, chooses to imitate you. I pray that you would give uh, this community uh, lots and lots of people to imitate as they imitate Christ. Would you give them dreams and reimaginations of how central discipleship should be so that they would make you as central as possible to the life, the suffering, and the resurrection moments of their church community? Would your presence be so evident in them that the whole city would know that you are near, that you are real, and that you love them? So in your good name we pray, amen.